the study of the words of redemption. And uh, we uh, have been doing an in-depth study, for those of you who are visiting, of a number of the words that are in common uh, usage in the Scripture. And uh, it's been very enlightening to study these and their usages in the Scripture and as they apply to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we want to continue with that study. We studied last week uh, concerning the, uh, uh, the words uh, preach, preacher, and preaching. And uh, it was very enlightening, was it not? To uh, find the tremendous distinction uh, that God puts upon the human uh, element in uh, bringing forth the message of the gospel. He has not committed it into the hands of angels. He does not write it in um, spiritual writing uh, upon a screen that uh, we can behold it in some supernatural event. Uh, he does not um, uh, cause it to come in a voice that comes and speaks to us from uh, some mysterious place unseen in heaven, but he's committed the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel to those who um, are believers in Jesus Christ, to human vessels, and uh, we came up with some astounding conclusions in that, and maybe we could just get a moment's review to find out. Preach, preacher, and preaching. Praise the Lord. Anybody get any uh, insight or any understanding that will help us this morning? Any question that we've raised? How many of you are awake this morning? Praise God for those few. Amen. Takes a while uh, to get our minds geared up and on the same track. That's why I take this time for review. Preach, preacher, and preaching. Brother Bill Bancroft. Preacher, someone who is to get firsthand and to go forth and declare it. Okay, uh, Brother Mark, did you have a question? It's very prominent that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be propagated through this means. Okay. have another hand over here? Where? Back in the back. Sister Brunson? There's an entirely different scene in the New Testament is the body of revealed truth by revelation, but preaching is essentially the declaration or proclamation of that which the Spirit has quickened. And we found that in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, that uh, when it says that God is chosen by the foolishness of preaching uh, to save them that believe, the, the sense there is not of the written, but as, a, but as that which is spoken. And so uh, we, we would not rule out the, the means of people reading the gospel and coming to an understanding through reading, but uh, that does not detract from the central body or the central thrust or theme 
is that this is quickened, made alive, and God has committed that this shall be extensively propagated by those who proclaim by the word of their mouth that which is written, which is the, the body of revealed truth. So we do, we'll not take away from that at all, but neither uh, do we want to lay aside or lose the thought uh, of the tremendous place that God has given to the preaching or proclamation or those who are, who are the proclaimers that have this central place in the body of believers or we could call the church of Jesus Christ. And they have a distinctive place uh, in that uh, Brother Lyle Smith. Preaching is essentially that which in, in, its, uh, in, its, in its foundational nature does not leave a person to uh, come to their own conclusions or to, to escape what may be there. But preaching is that instrumentality. That's what, a, that's what a herald is. Is that instrumentality that the Holy Spirit uses to demand a response. That's what preaching is. Very closely allied to that is exhortation, which is a summons to do the thing that has been proclaimed. In other words, the message is delivered. Now, essential with preaching is a demand for action in line with us. See, that's, a, that, that's, the, that's the central thought of what we were trying to get uh, in uh, the study of preach, preacher and preaching. does not mean that God does not have a... Uh, a written body of revelation. The Word of God is not a settled body of truth that is to be believed, but it means that that truth uh, is, uh, is left somewhat lacking unless there are those who will take up that truth and become heralds of God through the Holy Spirit that will demand a response and, and bring it to an impact of human hearts and, uh, and will reach out through that agency or through that instrumentality. That's exactly what a preacher is, Brother Phil Payson. Preaching and teaching is not the same. Preaching is, uh, is, the, is the man who summons the ecclesia and says, I've got a message from God. And, 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 and the ecclesia is the church. That's where that word comes from. It comes actually from a secular word. As a matter of fact, preacher comes from a secular word. He's a herald. He comes in and summons the ecclesia, the assembly together, and says, this is what God says. A teacher is someone who, in line with what has been proclaimed, gives continual instruction, illumination, uh, facets uh, of illustration that, uh, that, that causes that uh, to, over a period of time, to come into a settled instruction. Teaching takes, uh, takes a person from, uh, from the, from the uh, area where they are and, and leads them on higher through the understanding of instruction through a, as a process. Teacher and preacher are two different creatures, something we definitely need to see in our generation because we've, we've produced, for as long as I can remember, the emphasis has been on teaching. Everybody's a teacher. Everybody's a teacher, uh, but nobody is a preacher. And we've almost developed a whole generation that, uh, uh, that, uh, that feels that God's purposes are furthered or that they're accomplished. And you see, much of this comes out of modern psychology, where psychological principles and precepts uh, were, were propagated, where it said, 
that for a deep, uh, for a deep work to be done in the human psyche, uh, people must gather together and there must be some kind of encounter that will open them into interrelationship and out of this comes the whole body of what's known as relational theology. And so uh, the, the, we have a whole generation that are trying to, to go forth on the, on the understanding of psychological principles. Many, many men have had a deep impact in this. Uh, and uh, William James, who was a humanist, one of the probably one of the more foremost, that really caused a scream of this. And so the, uh, what was proclaimed was that small groups could, in interaction, gain far more than someone who stands up and what they call lectures. Well, uh, there's an element of truth to that. If there's no spirit of life and no divine revelation and unction, well, you might as well be playing God or checkers or whatever you're going to do or go to a lecture. But you see, that is not what the Scripture is talking about in a preacher. He's talking about someone who can get a hold of the hearts of people, not by human instrumentality or human oratory, but who speaks and the Spirit of God does the work in the human heart. And there's no substitute for that. None whatever. And so preaching and teaching are two completely different things, and uh, we need to understand that. Brother Mark. Yes. Yes. Preaching has a, as its, uh, at, at the heart of it or as an objective, uh, not so much the instruction, but there will, any good preacher will be, uh, there'll be some instruction in the mind. But it has more uh, as its, uh, as its uh, objective, the motivation of a will. This is what God says. Now, what we need to do is we need to do it. And who can, with unction of the Spirit of God, make the claims of Christ felt? You see, evangelism is an encounter uh, of souls. It's a collision of souls. And in evangelism, whether it is personal evangelism, personal witness, or whether it is mass evangelism or public preaching, has as its, uh, as its aim to bring a person into an encounter with God through Jesus Christ. But a preacher, uh, it, uh, uh, objectively, has before him, he, uh, if he is a true preacher, what the Bible says is a preacher, has a message from God. He does not, m most of the time, understand all that he is speaking as far as what has been quickened to his mind. But there'll be 500 people, there'll be 5,000 people, or there'll be 50 people, depending on how many he's preaching to, and every one of them will feel that God was preaching to them. I've had many people come to services, get saved, and said, how did you know the story of my life? You, you said, everything that is about me, how did you know that? And I said, I never saw you before, never laid eyes on you. But one who is in this place was speaking today, who is far beyond human capability and is able to express himself through a human vessel, and he brings it. So the objectivity is to move the will to do what God... This could, this could be many, many things. Brother Mark. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. See, the gospel has many facets. It has not only salvation, but it also has 
uh, all the things that we've talked about. Sanctification, that means cleaning up, right? Justification, that means a, a practical feeling uh, of that which issues out into righteousness. It must be a righteous life. And so any preacher uh, who uh, is uh, of any uh, uh, merit whatever is doing all of that at one time. See, the, the youngest babe in Christ is able to come and suck the bottle. And the deepest saint is able to come and say, Praise God, that was meat from heaven. And the worst sinner could say, God is in this place. Right? And the person who is discouraged can feel that there's an answer from heaven. So all of these have to do in the, in the ministry uh, of the body meeting together. That answer your question? Praise the Lord. Brother Tom. Why would he? No. Scripture says there's, there's a five-fold ministry. However, as we studied in the church, if you remember, uh, that, uh, that though there are distinctives in these, we have what? The apostle prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. But in this, there are facets of it that expressed through all. Remember studying that? Okay. So every pastor ought to be somewhat of an evangelist. He ought to have an evangelistic spirit and a flow that repeats itself in the people that they, and, and so on and so forth. But every pastor should be able to teach. Right? Okay. Brother Dale. I think it's been a while back. Yes. You see, in modern uh, Christian education, uh, this is a good illustration of what we're talking about. In modern Christian education, they say that you can't do what we're doing here this morning. See, they teach you that never teach a class over 15. And so we've violated for years that, and it just keeps growing and getting bigger and people just keep coming because evidently something's happening to cause them to feel that uh, truth is being imparted and being embraced. Amen? So uh, following that on out to its logical conclusion, I came to the, uh, to, the, to the feeling some years ago that in Sunday school, uh, as, it is, uh, as it is, that uh, we, we shouldn't worry so much about the classes or the size of the classes. What we need to worry about is the teachers. And uh, they, uh, a good teacher uh, is better than splitting uh, classes up into 40 different classes. And we've proven in this class, we've taught uh, successfully, and we're not against it now because we have people that are confident, but we've taught successfully junior highs and uh, senior citizens all in one place, right in this place here. See, it isn't... It isn't uh, it isn't the uh, uh, the uh, the format as much as it is the spirit that takes place in what transpires in that day. Very good observation. Someone else, quickly before we change, Brother Tim. Yes, I try to preach it also. The instruction with preaching will bring a conviction. Yes. There's a difference in that. Okay. We're teaching right here now. Teaching uh, uh, involves. Uh, uh, participation, question, answer, meeting people at their at their need level, triggering 
their, uh, their thinking, getting them locked into what's happening <clears throat> and keeping them involved uh, with an interaction that answers questions and, uh, and that uh, causes ministry to go forth at a person's need level in instruction. See, that's what, that's what we're doing right here. Sister uh, uh, Bronson. A prophet, well, a prophet biblically is one who tears down uh, uh, the wrong foundation, roots out, and, uh, and restructures. And uh, the Christian church as it is at the moment isn't quite ready for all that to transpire as far as an official office. Some of that is happening and we have some men that come through here uh, that are prophets, if I've ever seen one. They can, they can step into a service. And uh, before the service is 15 minutes along, they're already speaking to, to things that they don't even have any idea are transpiring. And before that ministry is finished, they are bringing to pass a work that is only a prophetic ministry. I'm not talking about speaking prophecy. I'm talking about a prophetic ministry, the ministry of the prophet that sees and speaks to it and brings to bear a unique ministry where there are things that are rooted out, things that are removed, decisions that are made, people are straightened up or removed, and, and, the, and the body of the century encouraged to go on. All right, this is prophetic ministry. Two of these men uh, that come our way are Bob French and John Messer. Both those men have prophetic ministries. But, but the church at large is not ready to, uh, to uh, embrace... Uh, yet because uh, there's a growth process taking place in the Church of Jesus Christ and what God's doing today, and they're not ready to say, okay, these people are prophets, and we're going to give them function and place, and we're going to see that, uh, that ministry is made for them and that uh, there's a functioning and a, and, a, and a progression of this. Does that answer your question, sister? Uh, but a tremendous thing is taking place in the church today, and I become more encouraged every year and what uh, God is doing in tearing down some of the old ideas and enabling us to come to grips with what the Word of God says. Okay? I want to move on with the other study this morning. I want to take a thought with... Uh, I hope that's triggered your thinking enough to, uh, to give you some inspiration. I want to come to grips this morning with the word atonement and uh, spend some time this morning with this. Atonement. Atonement. Good way to remember the underlying thought of this is at onement is the best thought that there ever is an illustration and a description of the word atonement. Christianity is distinctively this morning a religion of atonement. It gives the death of Jesus Christ first place in its ministry and in its declaration and in the gospel message. Christianity is given a unique position among all the religions of the world. It is a redemptive religion, and at the heart of Christianity is the message of atonement. The heart of the Christian revelation is not that Jesus was a good man, that he spoke uh, wonderful uh, speeches, that he, uh, he had good insight, that he was an example uh, of uh, how human beings ought to act that he, uh, that he uh, uh, set us an ethical standard. If, you're, if this is your only thought 
Uh, Christianity is not a message that Jesus was one of the prophets that came moving across the world scene and he spoke tremendous and dynamic things. If, you, if this is your view, you miss Christianity entirely. It centers in and homes in on this word. Christianity is a religion of atonement. Has at its heart the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. We'll come to grips with that in just a moment and what that means. It is a religion of redemption. It is unique in all the religions of earth. There's none that are like it. There are none that preaches this message save Christianity. Many of the religions of the world have ethics. They have bodies of ethics. They say same things that, that seemingly are uh, somewhat uh, identical or somewhat uh, sound the same, but Christianity stands alone. And the heart of Christianity is not ethics, is not phrases, is not example, is not, uh, is not uh, a declaration to an uh, upright or an ethical life. At the heart of the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ is the death of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. That's at the heart of it. That's the message of it. And without that, you have lost the entire uh, view and the understanding. Some years ago, I'll share this with you, a Parliament of Religions was held in Chicago in connection with, uh, with the World's Fair. And at that Parliament, uh, great ethnic faiths of the world were represented. And one by one, leading men arose and spoke for Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Mohammedanism. Then Dr. Joseph Cook of Boston, who'd been chosen to represent Christianity, arose to speak. Here is Lady Macbeth's hand, he said, stained with the foul murder of King Duncan. See her as she perambulates through the halls and corridors of her palatial mansion, stopping to cry out, Out, damned spot, out, I say. Will these hands ne'er be clean? Then, turning to the those seated on the platform, he said, Can any of you who are so anxious to propagate your religious systems offer any cleansing efficacy for the sin and guilt of Lady Macbeth's crime? An oppressive silence was maintained by them all, and they well might, for some of them, or the religious systems they represented, nor, or, or none of them rather, nor the religious systems they represented, nor any other religion on earth can offer a cleansing efficacy for the guilt of sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot unto God, can purge the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the message of Jesus Christ. It's not a message of a good man. It is not a message of a prophet on the world scene. It's not a, me a message of a, a body of philosophy or ethics. It is uh, essentially a message of atonement. has to do with man's sin and how that sin can be cleansed, not how it can be ignored, not how uh, it can be laid aside, not how man can function uh, intact with it, still upon his soul and upon his conscience, but how can it be expunged? How can it be released? How can it be cleansed? How can it be removed? And there's only one religion that offers the answer for that, my friend, and that's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we come to grips with the word atonement. I want someone to get for me Isaiah 59, verse 2. Someone would like to get that for me. Brother Tom Thompson. To understand this word, we have to 
uh, understand the separation of God and man. If you're a reader of the Bible, you understand immediately that here, according to the revelation of God, was God's man created. Adam and Eve in the garden, in fellowship with God, in a place of responsibility, in a place of dominion, in a place of, uh, of, uh, of destiny. But we see them deceived by the serpent, sinning, and that sin immediately entering their lives, and we see them driven out from the garden, and here we see the separation of God and man. To understand atonement, you must understand man's state in the world. He is separated by sin from God. This does not mean that God is not God of the earth and the heavens above. This does not mean that He is not Lord. It does not mean that He does not control. It simply means that man, as he functions upon God's earth, is separated. He has no relationship. He has no fellowship. He is bound for the place of judgment, eternally separated between he and his Creator. And this has happened because of his sin, and this is his natural estate. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from you and your God. Your sins have caused that His face will be hidden from you. This does not mean that man as a creature has ceased to exist. It does not mean that God has changed one single iota from what He was. But it means that God has separated himself from man. Man has separated himself from God because of man's iniquities and man's sin and man's rebellion. That is the separation between in God and man. Without that, we cannot understand atonement. Now, this does not mean that man does not pray in many forms. How many of you, before you were saved, when the when the when the the it, it really got down, boy, when it started coming down, you said, "God, you get me out of this, and I'm never going to do anything again." How many of you've done? Let me see your hands. See, there's a bunch of honest people. But you see, the problem is, is sin had separated, amen, and God is not obligated to hear the cry of those who are separated by their sins. And this is why the great majority of people, though God in His mercy and grace may seem to have answered prayer for some, uh, this is why many people said, well, I, I, got, I got into a tank, man, things are really coming down. And I prayed and I said, God, and He didn't do anything. You ever heard that? Okay. Your sins have separated, and we can come to an understanding of atonement. Looking just for a moment in a body of truth in the tabernacle, you remember the instruction that God gave? And here is where we come into Revelation that brings us into instruction. You remember the tabernacle? Enclosed by a linen fence. And here in the gate, the only gate and entrance, 
Immediately before it was an altar that signifying that the approach to a holy God. And God abode in the holy of holies, above the ark of the covenant, above the mercy seat. That's where he communed with man. There he manifested his Shekinah glory to teach us some tremendous spiritual truths about man's separation and reconciliation with God. So here we find an altar. We find that the beginning steps of reconciliation with God must begin at an altar where there's a substitutionary sacrifice for man's sin. How many of you know the basics of that? All right, this is the altar and the entrance. And then beyond that, the only way man could have access unto God was through priesthood who themselves were impure but who were merely performing the service of ministry that God had designed. They come and wash first in the brazen labor, teaching us that coming into relationship and reconciliation with God, man must uh, be sanctified. He must cleanse himself, not only by sacrifice, but as he travels uh, on into the experience of reconciliation with God. six again in Revelation, which is the church. Truth becomes light through the church. On the other side is the table of showbread, which is the fellowship, and uh, teaching us that in, 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 in uh, coming into God, that He does use instruments. Who does He use? He uses the proclaiming of the Word to make known the seven manifold revelations of Jehovah God in redemption. There also is fellowship. An important part of that is man's fellowship, one with another, his relationship to his fellow man. Jesus said, you come before God and you have hatred in your heart and unforget. Get it straightened on out before you go on in and offer your uh, sacrifices upon the altar. Then we have the golden altar of incense, uh, where drifting behind the, the veil of the curtain is the incense uh, representing man's prayer and his praise uh, that drifts in uh, into the presence of God and is joyed by Him. We find that the added step then uh, just before uh, the presence uh, and the, the Shekinah presence of God is prayer and praise and worship. Can you say amen? Say, why do these people praise God? Why do they lift up their hands? Why do they go through it? Because, beloved, uh, God uh, dwells in the praises of His people. And when a people begin to worship and praise God from their heart, they're very close uh, to the Shekinah presence. Then the veil, which is there, we find in the New Testament that, uh, that when Jesus uh, was sacrificed on Calvary for the sin of man, when the final sacrifice was made, the veil was rent in twain, thus opening the Holy of Holies unto man who had access unto God. So all of this is found there then. We find man separated, but we find man also being able to come in in the final revelation. But... Remember that before the final fulfillment of this atonement, before this, a priest went once a year after sacrifice, taking the blood in, went once a year into the holy place, making what was then an atonement 
which was not the final reconciliation, but which simply was a covering, sprinkled upon the mercy seat, upon the, uh, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and there uh, making once more the yearly sacrifice which caused man's sins to be covered but did not remove the problem, uh, and this was done once a year. Okay, let's come to grips then with some scriptures that have to do with the sacrifice and what we're, we're trying to say concerning atonement. Leviticus 1, 1 through 5. Somebody over here would like to get that for me. Ray Hendrick, Leviticus 1, 1 through 5. I want Leviticus 17, 10 to 15. Rob Kennard, Leviticus 17, 10 to 14. Chuck Pominville, Leviticus 23, 36, or 26 rather, to 36. Leviticus 23, 36, to, uh, 26 to 36. Uh, Leviticus 17, 10 to 14, Rob Kennard. And Leviticus 1, 1 through 5, Ray Hendricks. In a loud, clear voice so that we can all hear All right, here's great instruction and tremendous insight. As you remember, we're talking about atonement. Here the sacrifice is brought. The person who brings him lays his hands on them and says, This is for Chuck Pominville's sin. Amen? See, one of the problems we have as human beings is we're not willing to be honest with God, and we say that's... Uh, well, that's all right for you, Gail, but I don't need that. How many of you kids ever got saved? You went home and, and told a parent, hey, guess what? I got saved, quit eating dope, quit bed hopping, quit, quit uh, drinking the booze, and I got straightened out. And the parents get so pious and religious, and they say to you, why, you've always been a good girl, Kathy. <laughs> you were raised religious and we, we gave you that and uh, you say but that's not that's not that's not it um, uh, dad uh, what it is I really got saved I got born again got filled with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues glory to God is so exciting and they say to you that's okay for you Kathy I'm, I'm glad Kathy that you found something but we don't need that but there's a laying of hands on the sacrifice that says I am a sinner I need a sacrifice. This is for my sin. And the priest will slay it there after that, and the blood shall be efficacious for atonement. Remember, we're not through yet with the full revelation, but we're working up to God's understanding to give man an understanding which can never be twisted. And, oh, man is good at that, isn't he? It can never be redesigned. It can never be uh, reordered or reinstituted. It is a body of revelation that is there with potent power that generation after generation can seek to destroy it, but it will still lay there and the voice of it will go out like a trumpet sound that man cannot escape the truth of it. Leviticus 17, 10 through 14. Here we have a very interesting passage of Scripture giving us some instruction concerning blood. Very specific understanding begins to be unfolded that blood holds a very special place before God. It is to be treated with deference. 
is to be treated uh, as if uh, it is a, a, a unique uh, manifestation. And we're given some instruction concerning blood. Now remember, God is moving in divine revelation. Because God knowing man, man will misunderstand the atonement. He will say, when the final sacrifice is given, which will bring him real salvation, he'll say, Jesus was a wonderful man. He martyred himself for a cause. What humanity needs to do is to go out and give himself for a cause. See, but that's not what atonement is. Are you there with me? Mankind will say, it's wonderful. God needed to manifest His displeasure at man's sin. And so, therefore, the Lord Jesus, who was an example of God's displeasure at sin, He gave Himself so that God's governmental displeasure at sin might be seen. No, that isn't what the atonement is. Still with me? Others will say this and others will say that, but we see a very special emphasis put on blood. Okay, we're moving on. Um, uh, Leviticus 23, 26 through 36. Leviticus 23, 26 through 36. Okay, here we have this word atonement again. And remember that all of this has to do now with covering. Reconciliation is not a completed work at this time. It is covering. But we're moving towards something that God is revealing and fulfilled and expressed in Jesus Christ. All right, let's come to grips in the New Testament with the doctrine of atonement. I want Romans 3.25. Someone over here, quickly. Uh, Sister Celia Wilfong, Romans 3.25. I want someone else to get for me 1 John 2.2. 2. Uh, Bill Troxel, 1 John 2.2. 2. I want 1 John 4.10. Uh, Brother Van Dyke, 1 John 4.10. 1 John 2.2. 2. And Romans 3.25. Here we have left us then atonement. And then as we move in the New Testament, we find this word that comes to grips with our thought, which is propitiation, which is a tongue twister, one of those $40 words. <laughs> Amen. Okay? Let's stay with it. Let's don't leave it till we get an understanding here. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, talking of Jesus Christ, through faith in His blood. Now, propitiation is not a covering. Okay? 1 John 2.2 2. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our own sins also, uh, only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, this sacrifice, if appropriated, is efficacious 
or is powerful or we become active or become a reality for, and the possibility is that the entire world could be saved if they would. Okay? And 1 John 4.10. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and has sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins that we should be saved through Him. So here then we find the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death becomes a propitiation, not simply covering, but in the New Testament the atonement becomes the satisfaction. We'll come to just a little better understanding that in just a moment. The truth here, then, is not in that there's blood in the veins. This is not the truth of propitiation, but it's the truth of the blood upon the altar. The substitutionary, write that down somewhere, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a reality because a substitute, has been found for man's vile sin and rebellion against God. And that substitute is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Substitution, technical terms, propitiation, vicarious, one standing in for another, is what accomplishes the atonement, is what accomplishes the final reconciliation with man and God. Okay? We're talking then about reconciliation. We're not talking about a ritual. We talked about the rent veil and the Holy of Holies. And I want several scriptures, and then we're going to open it for discussion for a moment. I want Hebrews 9.15. Somebody quickly. Brother Van Dyke, Hebrews 9.15. Tom Thompson, Hebrews 10.19-22. 1 Peter 2.24, someone over here. Brother Mark Hurley and 1 Peter 3.18. Brother Dejadon, Bill Dejadon. Boy, that's a tongue twister. I had the hardest time. <laughs> and my wife has great faith in me. She said, he'll never get it. Don't, no sense to worry about it. He'll never get it. But I got it. Which proves that wives are not always right. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's have then those scriptures, Hebrews 9, 1 through 15. Perhaps you ought to turn there and follow through. As a matter of fact, uh, why don't you turn there and uh, let's just follow through that together and, uh, so that we don't get bogged down. Let me, let me help you there. And the person who uh, had that, uh, you pardon me, let me read that so we can move quickly through that. Hebrews 1, uh, 9, 1 through 15. Potent declaration. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service. And an earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made, the first in which was the lampstand, and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, in which was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubim of glory, shattering the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus prepared... 
The priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. See, this is a temporary thing, is what he's saying. Which stood only in foods and drinks and various washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling to the, the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the new covenant or testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What he has said is there was a time of covering in the in the atonement in the Old Testament, but now he says there's something better. Something has come where man can actually be reconciled and where the deed can be done to that reconciliation become a reality in the experience of salvation. Hebrews ten, nineteen through twenty two. Whoever had that read it for us. Okay, here we find the full reconciliation enjoined and uh, exercised uh, by the Lord Jesus himself, who is a type of that high priest that went into the Holy of Holies. First Peter 2.24. Who himself bear our own sins in his own body upon the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. First Peter three eighteen. Is that first Peter three eighteen? Doesn't sound right. Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh uh, and uh, living in the Spirit. So here we, we, here we find then this vicarious work this propitiatory work, this work of reconciliation whereby man and God are brought together at the cross. Okay, and are you following me? That's what atonement is. It means God and man reconciled, brought to at one through the work of propitiation, one who satisfies 
one who pays the debt, one who suffers for, one who stands in the place of, one who paid the price uh, instead of. That is an understanding of atonement. We're not going to get finished, so maybe we ought to give the rest of our time to answering questions or discussion. Uh, Brother uh, Miller. Jesus entered into heaven once, the Scripture says. He has entered in uh, and obtained for us an eternal inheritance. Because in heaven is answering what we showed in the pattern of the tabernacle in spiritual terms. And having entered in, He obtained that. It says once He's entered into, not the earthly tabernacle, that which is made with hand, but into heaven itself to accomplish that service which was drawn out and spelled out in, in terms or illustration that we can see in the tabernacle. Okay? That which the priests were doing. God manifested that fact once and for all when the temple veil was split from top to bottom. Okay? That blood was efficacious and satisfied the justice of God and the broken law of the because of the of the sin of man actually when a person gives his heart to Christ then the holy spirit takes that blood see this is a beautiful thing read the scripture and applies it that it becomes reality judicially it's already accomplished see jesus is set down on the right hand of god it's finished it's a finished work nothing left to be done there's no more there's nothing to be added to it it's all done it's finished the bill's paid but here, here are millions, and say, wouldn't you like to get saved? Oh, no, man, I don't want any of that stuff. But the bill's paid. Oh, no, no. I'm going to work it out myself. But you don't understand. Jesus Christ died on Calvary, and it's settled. God has stamped on it, paid in full when he raised him from the... No, no, man, I'm going to... Are you following me? Okay, but to those who say, yeah, I'd like to have that. Jesus, I do believe. God be merciful to me, a sinner. The Holy Spirit takes that and purges his conscience. And he said, wow, I got saved. Does that, does that answer your question? See, that blood of Jesus is, is, not, is not just blood. It's the blood of the only begotten Son of God. It is efficacious today. It is powerful today. The proof of it is sitting right in this building right now. People of every background of sin with the power of sin broken. Brother Dan? He's, he's, a, he's a whole bunch of things. He's the mercy seat. Amen. Uh, he's the, he's the, the covenant itself. The fulfiller of that. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, he's... Uh, he's just a lot of things, yes. Perhaps someday, if I can ever get the time, I, I would like to do a study of the tabernacle in here. I believe it would be very enlightening for us uh, in light of these terms. But that's exactly true, Dan. You're correct. Remember now the words of the Scripture. Uh, for you're not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or without blemish. Right? Not by righteous works which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us by the washing 
of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. See, the Holy Spirit makes that real today. Uh, Revelation 1, 5, Unto Him who loved us and has washed us from our sins in His own blood. But you who were far off, once were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on. Are you following me? The blood of Jesus. See, Christianity is a religion of blood. Propitiatory blood of the lovely Son of God who was given as a gift for our sins that they might be washed away. Brother Tom, question. That's correct. No martyr, no governmental displeasure, and we'll deal next week with a bunch of things. No accident. No, no. This was God's design. Traces of it found clear in the Old Testament that came down, and, uh, and it's the blood that satisfies. Sister? I don't think so. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> no, not at all. That's Jehovah Witness. Yeah. No. They're, they're straying at a gnat and swallowing a camel, which the human beings are very apt at. Amen. But he, his purpose was to bring us to an understanding of that the life of the flesh is in the blood pointing towards in type to the precious blood of Jesus, which is to be shed on Calvary. And that distinction is made all through the Old Testament. The blood of the sacrifice. Now, this, not this sacrifice was burnt. Remember, the sacrifice was burnt. But the blood, there was a special care given to the blood, which had holy and spiritual significance. I'm out of time. The ushers are waving at me desperately. And we're going to conclude this next week. If you have any other questions, get them together, write them down, and let's answer them next week. The Lord bless you.